Now, welcome back to another Endoscopy News podcast. This week, we have looked a little further into something which Rebecca Fitzgerald mentioned in her Sir Arthur Hurst lecture at the BSG campus. It appears that the world of molecular screening is being launched by a company called Grail this summer, with the inclusion of 165,000 patients into a pilot study here in the UK to search for more than 50 cancers. The company has developed this blood test, which you can read about in the Annals of Oncology last year. Anyway, I recorded a conversation which I had about this brave new world with Nick Burr here in Leeds. They developed this assay called the gallery, gallery assay, which I initially thought it was it would just be an assay to search for mutated cancerous DNA spinning around in blood. But actually, it's more clever than that. There's been a paper published on the topic with lovely infographics. I read it through and I was none the wiser. I don't understand it at all. But it's something to do with, you know, how genes can be silenced by, by the body attaching a methyl group to this CPG intra-region of a gene. Then basically that gene is then silenced. And this system searches for methylated genes circulating uh, in in the blood. But I'm not still not sure if it's our own DNA that it searches for. But it's very clever, no doubt about it. They they developed this gallery assay in conjunction, I think the Wellcome Trust are in there. It's just, There's more than just this company involved in it. And they're basically now looking for a bigger group of patients to test it on. And uh, the NHS has now agreed to invite 140,000 people to have blood tests done every year to search for something like, well, more than 50 cancers. There are HPV virus-driven cancers such as, uh, well, squamous cell cancers of anus, head and neck, cervix. But there's also uterus, prostate, bladder, kidney, breast, colon, liver cancer, which I take to mean cholangiocarcinoma, but I don't know, it, it didn't really... Yeah, yeah, HCC, lung cancer, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, esophageal cancer, gastric cancer, lymphoma, and myeloma. So pretty impressive array of uh, cancers it looks for. And basically, people aged between 50 and 79 will be invited to this. Looking at that study published in Annal of Oncology last year, detection is better with a bigger volume of cancer. So presumably this methylated DNA is is cancer DNA. Uh, because uh, at the stage one cancers, they, they will only, I say, but they'll only pick up 39% of the cancers. Stage two disease, uh, 69% of cancers. Stage three disease, 83% cancers. And stage four disease, which is probably pretty clinically obvious in stage four disease. You know something is wrong then, it will pick up 92% of cancers. More interesting part of this is that the false positive rate was only 0.7%, which is vital, isn't it? So that's good, but it's still seven out of a thousand. And if you're diagnosing a military population... There'd be a lot of unhappy people with a positive test. I think Grail itself says that they're aiming to pick up 55% of the cancers in a population, prevalent cancers. So that's better than uh, a fit test for 
colonic cancer, isn't it, for example? I mean, if we, to be honest. Yeah, it's 43,000 people in the UK you don't give a false positive to if you screened everyone with that. That's a lot of false positives, <laughs> yeah. but, but you wouldn't scream babies, though, would you? You would, you would scream. That was the adult population, yeah, twenty million adults, which is not too bad. That's that's fewer positives that we generate on the bowel cancer screening program. We don't just pick up cancer in the bowel cancer screening program. We pick up polyps too, which has a benefit in removing them in the future. These people are probably less likely once they've got a clean colon, less likely to develop cancer for at least ten years, maybe longer. Maybe forever. I don't know. So anyway, so if this assay picks up 55% of the prevalent cancers, if you assume that 1.3% of these 140,000 patients have a cancer, the test will generate, according to my figures, 2,000 positive results. Half of these will be true positives and the other half will be false positives, which I think sounds pretty good. The bowel cancer screening program would produce many more positives than that. So those figures on the face of it look pretty decent. And if the results are good, another 1 million UK participants will be invited between 2024 and 25. You can imagine the whoever reads the Daily Telegraph, they'll be on the phone, won't they? Once they read this and said, I want to go on the trial. You don't need to invite me. I'm there. So the sharp elbow middle classes, they'll be queuing up for this test. Yellow Emperor, 5,000 years ago, said the superior physician will nip the early buds of disease. You know, he was right, wasn't he, 5,000 years ago? I, I think you're right. And it's a very easy sell on the face of it, because if you explain it like that, who wouldn't want to know that they were at risk of developing a serious cancer on the face of it but obviously this area is extremely complicated and there are a whole host of caveats that go along with this about turning people into patients and trying to find disease at such an early stage when you've got to be as confident as you can that that person's going to come to harm from the disease and not harm from the investigations, the treatment, everything that goes along with a diagnosis like that. But that never comes in the conversation. Time and time again, you read the cancer was found too late. The implication is anything can be cured if you just get it early enough. And that's the premise of this test, isn't it? These 55 cancers, if you find it early enough, you can stop the process in these tracks. But I, but I agree with you. Just because you found this, the DNA signature of myeloma or lymphoma, does that mean that you can stop it from developing? I don't know. I, I don't know either. It's obviously outside an area of expertise, but it's a, clearly going to be a very long conversation to explain this to people um, in that amount of detail before embarking on this because you can't go back once you've been told that your DNA signature is dodgy then and have they have they really thought it through? Can you imagine if you got a positive DNA signature for myeloma and they don't find any myeloma which point can you say it was a false alarm? You don't have the I mean, when when you draw the line and say, that, sorry, this was a false positive, you don't need to worry. Yeah, it raises very, very important points. And it probably is it's undoubtedly going to be sat there in the back of people's minds that they've had this positive test. But on the other side, the huge benefit of this is 
like you said, all those patients who you picked it up too late, uh, there was less to be done about it, there was less treatment available. Um, the benefits are clearly there, but there are also risks, as with everything, unfortunately. Early pancreatic cancer is notoriously difficult to spot, isn't it, on imaging and MRI EOS. None of our screening methods have shown, even in high-risk groups, that it's actually of any benefit. So it'd be a tall order for this test of pancreatic cancer to be predictive enough for patients to be sent for an Ivy Lewis. Whipple's, sorry, Whipple's procedure, the thing is gone. Oh, it was nothing in there. It was a false positive. Either way, you're cured now. So it's a clear outcome, isn't it? But for, for hematological cancers, I'm a bit more ordered. There is another angle, though. Imagine if you if you got cirrhosis and you volunteer for this and you've got a positive DNA signature for HCC. Uh, that's one of the transplant criteria is for HCCs. So maybe it'll push you up the list then of transplants. I mean, these are implications. Have these things been discussed? This is the first I've heard of this 140,000 people are going to be volunteered. Uh, but maybe up and down the country, there's been physicians being approached to think through how to manage the, the positives. Yeah, I, th I think it's clearly such an exciting, uh, interesting new development and totally new way to think about um, medicine. Um, but it's got such a lot for us to get our head around, uh, let alone the patients uh, who are going to be involved. So these kind of tests should be assessed against the Wilson and Younger criteria. So these were brought in in 1968, and maybe you could put a link to them on the website or podcast description. But basically, it's a series of questions that screening tests should be judged against. So essentially, you need to know the epidemiology of the disease, and for it to be an important problem for us to tackle, um, there should be a detectable preclinical phase and you need to define who you're going to um, attack with this. And ideally, there should be the infrastructures for implementing this test and how to screen people, invite people, get them um, along for the investigations. A big thing driving it is then cost effectiveness. And that's put in the context of the healthcare system as a whole. Um, so there's a lot of things to consider. I mean, you and I deal day in, day out with bowel cancer, and that fits very, very well into this uh, paradigm. So we know that bowel cancer is a big problem, fourth most common cancer in England. We know that there's a detectable preclinical phase. We spend most of our days taking off polyps, and there are an acceptable range of tests uh, for people. And some of the screening tests we use are very cheap and cost effectiveness compared to the burden of managing late stage bowel cancer. And obviously people are affected with bowel cancer at a productive time of their life between 50 and 70 years old. So you want to keep those people active, working, contributing to society. So bowel cancer fits very well with this and it's got to be considered and I'm sure it has been with some of these other new tests. <laughs> well, you, you, you would have hoped it has. Um, and I guess we're standing at the threshold of a new era of molecular screening for occult disease, aren't we? And I get the feeling that these Wilson and Jung criteria has fallen by the wayside. No one bothers with them anymore. But I think they're even more important now 
when we are looking for even earlier stages of disease. And I guess this NHS GRAIL project is actually part of evaluating whether this is uh, something that the National Health Service should get involved with. I mean, my own big take from the bowel cancer screening program is the infrastructure and the the safeguards within it, the the timeliness audits, the, the, the benchmarks that are built in to confirm that we're running a good service for the for the sake of uh, of this grail study presumably you couldn't leave people hanging for two months with a positive test before you investigate them surely there should be timeliness thresholds built in so after a positive test within two weeks seems reasonable you will have an appointment to see the specialist in hospital for further investigations yeah you'd think it'd have to be you can't leave uh suddenly turn people into patients and then leaving them with an abnormal test and not following it up. Absolutely. And it also has implications, as with a lot of disease, not just for the patient, but for the whole family. The line message is there's fantastic opportunity, but we need a lot more understanding about it and then to think about the implications. And I'm sure it is in hand and in safe hands, but it it does need thinking about, especially given the resource-constrained health service we live in at the moment? Can we deal with the diseases we're managing with at the moment? Can we provide enough colonoscopies? Can we provide enough tests, enough cure? Probably not at the moment. And is this just going to totally sink the health service if you have a million people who suddenly want a lot of tests and reassurance, information, counselling, genetic services, uh everything that comes along with it. You can't offer one part of the pathway without dealing with everything. Well, they've got the job cut out for them because from mid-2021, these 140,000 people will be approached. And then, if it all goes well, they will be monitored for three years. So that will take you through to 2024. They will then have a few months to kind of mull over the figures because in 2024-25, another million will be invited. So there's hardly hardly time to pause and think uh, implementation. You know, you need to write patient information leaflets about the pros and cons and uh, have it translated different language. You need the infrastructure in place. You need to have all the services on board. You need to have benchmarks for who is positive, who is negative, what investigations to do. This is ambitious. You're a, you're an optimist, uh, Nick. <laughs> I'm a pessimist. I look at this and think, no, nobody's even dreamt about the, the implications of all this and the implication for services. But I hope you're right. I hope, I hope this has all been been carefully considered in the halls of power as we speak because the NHS and health services you know around the world we we mainly deal with disease don't patients with problems they're not patients they're they're the worried well yeah anyway hopefully this will all pan out okay (laughs) so the big question uh, Bjorn is when your invite comes through the post are you going to take the test I'll be first in line then I'd be a bit more worried because if you have a positive signal for myeloma or something or lymphoma, how how do you know that you're clear? This is my worry. How how can you can you reassure yourself that yeah, this was a false alarm, there was nothing there. So I I'll probably sit back and see how it pans out before I volunteer. I'll be in the second wave. 
the topic of, of screening for early disease, we've written a letter, haven't we, Nick? We have written a letter, yeah. We got interested in a recent publication that was in uh, GUT um, from American team led by Brooks Cash um, and Doug Rex. And they looked at screening tests for bowel cancer um, and compared the utility of capsule colonoscopy, um, which seems to be coming back into vogue, and CT colonography versus good old colonoscopy. Yeah, capsule has had a revival, hasn't it? Because it's one of the avenues to take us out of the backlog we have in endoscopies. If we can and save our colonoscopies for the people who really need it, who definitely have a pathology. Yeah, and important this year, especially with the COVID pandemic, to try and keep people out of hospital as much as we can. So potentially a, a good non-invasive uh, outpatient test, although we do all of our colonoscopies uh, on a day case, so less of an issue really. So what do we know about um, the pickup of CTC versus capsule? So from this study, uh, CTC didn't do very well at all. Uh, it was quite remarkable actually how poorly it fared compared to capsule and colonoscopy. So for lesions greater than six millimeters, the pickup rate was only around eight or nine percent. Um, and that was compared to 30 percent for the capsule colonoscopy. Which is not my, my experience. When I do colonoscopy, if CTC has said there's a polyp at splenic flexure, then there is a polyp at the splenic flexure. That's our in-house CTC service. They're, they're pretty good. Yeah, they're fantastic, aren't they? Especially yeah. with the faecal tagging, um, they're able to say pretty accurately where the polyp is. And you're right, we have three or four passes through the area of the affected colon to find that polyp, and invariably there it is. These authors, this study, didn't find that. They found that CTC was way worse yeah, than way, capsule. Way worse. And that's what piqued our interest, really. And far be it from us endoscopists to be championing the uh, radiologists, but we felt we had to back up our colleagues and try and dig a little bit deeper into it. And I think the main issue is that if you are going to report something that is odds with the established literature and clinical experience, you need to justify it a bit better. Um, so we know from randomised pr prospective studies over the last 20 years that CTC stacks up very well against colonoscopy. So detection rates are pretty much identical for significant pathology. Uh, so the Dutch randomised control trial, the COCOS study, and also the UK SIGAR study um, all showed identical rates. And this new paper is quite at odds uh, with those results. And we digged a little bit deeper into it. And there are potential issues that need explaining about how the CTCs were reported um, that wasn't there in the main document. Um, the potential reasons why CTC is not very good is because you might have old scanner equipment, which seems unlikely. You have radiologists who are not experts in reporting on CTCs. Or thirdly, you have patients who don't lie still on the scanner table or won't take the bowel cleansing, perhaps. You know, these are potential explanations, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And we know from our own practice um, that 
more experienced colonoscopists have much better metrics and much better outcomes. The more you do, uh, the keener you are to find those polyps, characterise those polyps, the better you do. And the same stands up for CTC um, in the bowel cancer screening programme in tertiary specialist centres. Um, outcomes for reporting CTCs are better. Um, and in the American study, it would appear that the standard or experience for reporting the CTCs was 50 procedures as a baseline and then 50 every two years for the local readers, um, which probably needs a bit more explanation. The reasons why we do CTC, so it fits very nicely into our algorithm for investigating for bowel cancer because the bowel prep regime is, is very light. So it's a low residue diet and then gastrographin only to do the faecal tagging and provide a little bit of laxative. Now compare that with the capsule uh, bowel prep, which was quite a rigorous three-day regime of low residue diet, clear liquid diet, stimulant laxatives, four litres of osmotic laxatives, a suppository on the day, and also some gastrographin. Um, it's not going to be feasible for a lot of people, and especially the elderly comorbid population who CTC sometimes fits very well for but they weren't talking about the elderly i guess they were talking about a screening population which will be kind of 50 to 70 i guess the bulk of them yeah that's absolutely correct it was the uh, average risk screening population which in america is from 50. and they could then probably endure that severe bar cleansing yeah it's interesting isn't it i uh, sometimes i I, you know, if if CDC says there's a polyp, I believe there is a polyp there. It's just a matter of finding it. But the reverse isn't true. I sometimes find polyps at colonoscopy that CTC missed, flat lesions. I can believe that uh, CTC and flat polyps, perhaps there is an issue there. But for polypoid lesions, I think they're, they are good. Yeah, so we've written a letter, haven't we? For further explanation as to why the authors believe the CDC results were at odds with the published literature, both in and outside of America. We look forward to that. Yeah. Having said that, I don't think I would like a CTC. It's radiation, isn't it? Yeah, um, it is more radiation. One of the benefits of CTC, though, is finding extracolonic findings. Uh, so sometimes it'd be an incidental oma that you might not want to know about, but the renal cancer that's causing the iron deficiency anemia picked up on the uh, CTC. But that's different. You, you see, so if you've got a patient with undergoing diagnostic investigation, then I think CTC and finding extra colonial lesion is a good thing. But if you're screening for bowel cancer... Yeah, that's a very good, good point and good thought to use it in the symptomatic population, but not the fit positive bowel cancer screening. That's right. I worry about radiation. That's one of my little little things that freaks me out. I'd think about it, but I'd be less concerned with the more recent scans and the lower radiation doses. And I think the absolute risks of solid malignancies after radiology is very low. Um, a lot, as far as I understand, a lot of the earlier reports were extrapolations back from nuclear fallout and Chernobyl and things like that. Um, and it's not necessarily a linear uh, route back to a CT scanner from being next to a exploding nuclear reactor. 
That is true, absolutely. And one of the one of the outcomes of these re research is that we're surprisingly resilient to radiation, considering. Well, thanks, Nick. We we covered a lot of ground on the topic of screening for early disease. Then a topic in the ascendance, I'd say. And that's all from us. Thanks to everyone for listening. And uh, let's catch up again in two weeks' time.